The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. If instead Putin doubles down, then so shall we, further ratcheting up economic pressure and supporting Ukraine with finance. Sanctions have to be as powerful as they can possibly be. We will be pushing the government to go further and faster. We could have a massive miscalculation and we will then be in a full-scale war across the globe. You're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Ewan Potts. And good afternoon, I'm Caroline Hepke. Coming up on today's programme, we're taking a deep dive into Northern Ireland's politics and the UK's row with Brussels over the protocol. We'll get the latest from our reporter in Dublin, hear from the deputy leader of Northern Ireland's Alliance Party, Stephen Farry, and hear a view on the way forward for unionism with the Professor Peter Sherlow, who is director of the University of Liverpool's Institute of Irish studies. So the threat of a major showdown with the European Union remains. The Foreign Secretary Liz Truss has reiterated a threat to scrap parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol, saying it's a matter of internal peace and security. This after talks with the EU's Brexit negotiator. Speaking today, the Irish Prime Minister Michael Martin says that the UK government wants seem what the UK government wants seems to change and the goalposts keep on changing. Meanwhile, the DUP leader Geoffrey Donaldson says that his party will not support the election of a new speaker in Stormont today. The party is refusing to jointly govern with the nationalist group Sinn Féin until its concerns over the Brexit arrangements are addressed. Now, that legislation, of course, dictates checks on some goods crossing the Irish Sea. Well, let's start off the programme with an update from Bloomberg's reporter Peter Flanagan, who joins us from our Dublin office. Peter, thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg Westminster. Now, just talk us through where things stand with the protocol. Yeah, so with the protocol at the moment, um, in essentially the British government and the EU are something out of standoff. And the British government has long argued that the protocol needs to be changed or to be removed, as you said, because it's you know, disrupting trade between Northern Ireland and the rest of the UK. It undermines Northern Ireland's place within the, within the UK, whereas the EU and the Irish government along with them have long argued that, look, this is an international agreement that Boris Johnson's government signed. You knew exactly what it was when you signed the deal, and international agreements must be honoured. The, the EU has said they can make concessions. I mean, there have been some concessions, some checks have been delayed, but they have been quite adamant that the protocol itself will not be removed. Okay, so this is a standoff. How is that affecting then politics in Northern Ireland? Because, of course, a few days ago we had uh, regional elections, local elections across the UK and including in Northern Ireland. Yes, so the DUP, the Democratic Unionist Party, the biggest unionist party in Northern Ireland, which wants Northern Ireland to remain part of the UK, they have said they will not enter the power-sharing government, regional government in Northern Ireland without the protocol and issue being solved, whether that's the protocol being removed in its entirety or what. Now, the the thing with the northern with the regional government in, in the northern in Northern Ireland is that it's a power sharing assembly. So, by the DUP saying they won't enter the government there, that the government cannot function. You know, the legislature cannot function. So, at the moment, the the government is essentially being run by civil servants in Northern Ireland, 
that situation can continue until about November, and then there will have to be new elections in the region if it isn't resolved by then. So uh, essentially, there can be no major decisions made on, in Northern Ireland until this issue is solved. Peter, just talk us through um, the view of the, gov- the, the government in Dublin. Now, their uh, line is pretty much the same as, uh, as Brussels, isn't it? I'm not quite sure if Brussels is following Dublin's line or Dublin's following Brussels, but the, the, the two things are one and the same, aren't they? Yes, they are. I mean, the Irish government has been adamant throughout this process. I mean, going back to immediately after the Brexit vote, that they, the Irish government has been very careful not to have um, bilateral negotiations with with the UK on this. And, you know, they have said repeatedly through current Prime Minister Micheál Martin and his predecessor, Leo Bradker, we are part of the EU. We follow the EU's line on this. And there can be no kind of separate side deal, if you like. You know, and Micheál Martin yesterday, he was very clear. Um, you know, the EU has been flexible on this matter throughout. But when the, when the EU has given ground, it hasn't been reciprocated by the UK. The British government has kept on pushing and pushing, essentially. And he even said yesterday, it, he, he's not clear exactly what the British government wants out of these talks. The goalposts keep moving, as you said. And he has said before that there, there is an absence of clarity on what the British government's landing zone is on these talks. So, um, you know, the Irish government has certainly backed the EU throughout this process. Okay. So then where do we go from here, I suppose? Um, the, the UK has, has ramped up rhetoric somewhat, hasn't it? Yeah, it, it's difficult to say at this point. I mean, as you say, the UK has really ramped things up in the last few days, in the last few weeks even. But we've also been here before. I mean, there have been a few occasions in the past where kind of the language out of, out of London has really kind of um, increased. The, the kind of severity of, of it, if you like, has increased. Only that, only for them to eventually pull back and to somewhat, you could say, back off a little bit. And then, um, you know, this has been noticed in the past. And Ireland's Europe Minister, Thomas Byrne, he said yet last night that he expects the British government to back off and, in his own words, honour an international agreement because that is what they've done before. But on the other side of this, you know, nothing is guaranteed. And, you know, this is arguably this is the biggest blow up over the protocol since it, since it was agreed and since it came in. So, I mean, it's one thing to say that the UK government has done this before, only to step back, but that's no guarantee that they won't, that they won't step back this time. Peter, just looking uh, slightly further into the distance, what are the chances of a, of a border poll uh, in uh, the north of Ireland? Clearly, um, Sinn Féin, this is something which they would like to see, uh, and they did come top, top of the poll at the Stormont elections. D- does that bring us any nearer? There are, there are quite a lot of hurdles to getting there, aren't there? Yeah, there are. I mean, I think, yes, they are the biggest. They did essentially win the election um, for the first time, and that has kind of put the issue of the United Ireland under a border poll very much back on the political agenda. But the reality is such a poll will be years and years away. There is no prospect of it in the near future. And the way, as a result of the peace agreement, which basically, um, you know, resolved the issues that caused years of violence in the North back in 1998, it is really it is up to the British government to decide when to call that poll. And the language within the agreement says a poll should only be called um, uh, uh, if there is a consistent majority for a United Ireland. Now, how that is measured, it doesn't say whether that's a series of opinion polls or something else. And the British government has said this, that this is not going to happen anytime soon. So certainly Sinn Féin's victory has put it back on top of the agenda. It's very much in the ether again. 
but you know this is not happening in the next five years or anything like that this is a very much a, it's a it's a long way away at this point Peter, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, Great to get you on the programme this morning. That is Bloomberg's Peter Flanagan joining us there from Dublin on the latest when it comes to the Northern Ireland Protocol. Well, the Alliance Party was one of the big winners in the elections to the Northern Ireland Assembly last week, more than doubling its representation and cementing its place as the third party in Northern Irish politics. It's urging the British government against unilateral action on the protocol. Now, the Alliance deputy leader, Stephen Farry, who is MP for North Down, told us on Bloomberg Westminster that this kind of escalation by the UK government would be a, quote, grossly irresponsible act. Have a listen. We've heard a lot of rhetoric and clearly it is escalating and to be clear from our perspective, if any of this becomes reality over the coming days and weeks, it would be a grossly irresponsible act on the part of the UK government. It would do enormous damage to Northern Ireland itself, but also it would do huge damage to the UK's international relationships, including their trade agreement with the European Union and also their relationship with with the United States, which is of such importance. And there is a real premium at the moment on international unity as we try to face down Russian aggression against uh, Ukraine. It sends a a terrible message in terms of the UK's commitment to upholding its treaty obligations and and wider international law. Um, The only way forward is is to work with the European Union in a constructive and pragmatic way to address and find solutions to the challenges that have been posed by the Northern Ireland Protocol. But the protocol is there for very particular reasons. It reflects the choices made by both the UK government and the DUP around the nature of Brexit in terms of having a hard Brexit outside the customs union and, and single market. And with that, there comes inevitably some degree of line on a map and interface drawn somewhere in these islands to police the interface between the single market of the European Union and the UK's um, economy. And wherever you draw that line, there will be a degree of friction uh, and some threat to, to someone's identity. Uh, what we All we can do is, is mitigate that as far as we can, but we also have to be honest with people that that reflects the choices made around Brexit. Uh, and there, there will be a limitation in terms of how far that can ultimately go, uh, but certainly that's, that's pressured out there. The, the key ingredient, not a, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, sorry Stephen, I was going to say, where do you put the blame for the mess over the Northern Ireland Protocol? Because it is a mess, isn't it? I, I put the, 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 the blame entirely uh, with both the UK government and the, and the DUP. Um, p- people went into to Brexit not processing the implications of what it, what it means. And in particular, people charged towards a hard Brexit and turned down other alternatives that maybe would have softened the impact on a place like Northern Ireland. I mean, I mean Northern Ireland only really works through through sharing and inter- interdependence. We are part of the island of the island of Ireland. Uh, we're also part of the of the UK. Uh, so businesses, uh, people work uh, on a north, south, and east, west basis. The problem with Brexit is it comes along and tries to impose simplistic black and white solutions on a situation that requires a degree of complexity, a degree of nuance, uh, some degree of, of shades of grey to make this, this, the situation work uh, work effectively. And all of that has been has been tossed up in the air. The, the protocol was the soft landing that provides Northern Ireland with a degree of protection. Uh, it allows Northern Ireland uh, unfettered access to both the European mm and GP markets, so there's, there's some degree of opportunity for North 
narratives. It's not about, about about challenges, but some people just haven't come to terms with the implications of their own choice choices around Brexit. They haven't addressed the contradictions in terms of of their of their position. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Well, the UK has escalated its threats over the post-Brexit deal for Northern Ireland, saying that the European Union's latest proposals on trading arrangements won't work and signalling that the government is prepared to take unilateral steps unless a new deal can be negotiated. Well, let's focus in now on the future of unionism in Northern Ireland. Joining us now, Professor Peter Sherlow, Director of the University of Liverpool's Institute of Irish Studies. Peter, thanks so much for joining us on Bloomberg Westminster. Now, talk to us about the threat from the TUV. Now, for people who don't follow Northern Ireland politics, probably worth just explaining uh, the TUV is the most uh, most hard line of the unionist parties, isn't it? Tell, talk to us about the threat to the DUP. Well, you've picked up on a very important point, which is like republicanism and nationalism, unionism is not homogenous. It has different wings. And there is a small party, as you've mentioned, called the uh, traditional unionist voice, which uh, came out of the DUP. Uh, is very evangelical, very opposed to marriage equality, uh, the right of women to control their bodies, and in particular got some wind in their sails over the protocol issue, which they see as a constitutional issue. So the divergence in trade and uh, setting of rules and regulations in the future by Europe is something that particularly exercised them. Uh, they, they, they clearly got uh, 7% in the most recent election, uh, they returned with one seat, given our uh, STV system. But nonetheless, they damaged DUP fortunes. And clearly, if they hadn't taken a more vociferous, if they if they hadn't stood in the vociferous way that they did, uh, you know, the DUP probably would have come back with roughly the same number of seats as it did previously. Yeah, but but some of their vote was eroded effectively, and and this is why um, you know there is now this issue around whether the DUP actually uh, joins in with power sharing. Again, they've uh, talked about today not not budging on this issue and, and not yeah. taking part. I mean, how serious is that? And it, it, you know, will it change? I suppose there, there's a larger existential problem within unionism, and 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 it's to do with the fact that many people who are pro-union many who wish to stay in the UK don't vote for unionist parties. Mm. And the reason they don't vote for unionist parties, so so, so in the, the society we live in, in with this sort of ethnic politics, you know, the, the mantra had always been for either side to vote to keep the other side out. Now what's happened within the, the unionist population is increasingly they won't do that. And the reason why they won't do that is because they, they are secular. Uh, they, they, they have very liberal attitudes. Uh, you know, the pro-union community is is supportive of marriage equality it's actually more supportive of the right to abortion than than the nationalist community and basically those people have simply drifted away so 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 the crisis that we're seeing today is is not only just a declining vote for for political parties within unionism it's actually that they're out of touch with a very significant share of people who are unionist so so what's happened here has really been a question of painting themselves into questions over the protocol and, and as they painted themselves into the corner, 
they actually demanded more paint. Now, now, what's important to understand here is the protocol is not properly understood uh, and, and unionism has raised issues which are real issues, but it's raised them in a very bad way. It's raised them in a very angry way and it's raised them in a very dismissive way. So, so there are two things that are important here. Mm-hmm. One is the movement of goods between Britain and Northern Ireland, which have to be checked so as they don't enter the single market. Okay, so so we know the EU will mitigate on this. We know the EU will, uh, you know, they've already said that they reduce paperwork by 50 percent. And they've already said they'll, they'll, they'll take away most of the checks on veterinary and movement of animals, etc. So, so 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 that can so, some way can, can be tempered. But but there's a bigger issue here, which is actually about rule setting. So in the future, because Northern Ireland's in both the UK market and the EU single market, Mm-hmm. that rules in the future will be set in Europe. Now, that is seen as a unionist issue, when actually it should be a societal issue. And, and if I can just explain that very, yeah. very quickly. Yeah. Say, for example, a, a big a, Northern Ireland supplies 20% of Great Britain's food stuff. Now, so, so in this Ukraine crisis, it's very clear that you need to keep a healthy agribusiness sector in Northern Ireland. Many of the calves that are, that are brought into Northern Ireland come from Great Britain. So say, for example, in the future, Europe breaks in a rule which is not adhered to in Great Britain. So say, say a growth hormone. Say in Britain you give calves a growth hormone. Those calves that then come to Northern Ireland to be fattened, to, 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 to be part of the, 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 the agribusiness sector, could not be moved into the single market. Theoretically, you would destroy the beef industry in Northern Ireland. So, so what we've got here is a really big problem in that this is seen as a constitutional issue when in fact it actually should be seen as a societal issue, a business economics issue. And, and, and what we have is the parties, you just had Stephen Farry on, yeah. the Alliance, Sinn Féin and the SDLP at the very start said, implement the protocol, implement the protocol, implement the protocol. Then what happened was civic society and the business sector stood up and said, there are issues with the protocol. So then they shifted into the space of mitigations. We should have mitigations, okay? So, so the point I'm trying to illustrate to you, and, and I'm a remainer, I'm from the pro-union community, but, and, and, but the point I'm trying to really illustrate to you here is, I, I think everybody's dealing with this in the wrong way, but mm. what we aren't understanding is the future rule setting could decimate parts of the, 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 the economy of Northern Ireland. So it's not a constitutional issue, of course, sorry, it is a constitutional issue. But what's really important here to understand is that this could have long-term economic consequences. And that type of okay, conversation so that point, is that point not understood. being held. Yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, no, so I get that point, yes. And also they, that, though, is something, I suppose people on the other side of the argument might say but that um, there hasn't been that much evidence, perhaps, of that, or that there has been a debate around whether or not there's mm-hmm. been a direct economic impact from the Northern Ireland Protocol on the Northern Irish economy or not yet. So there are some areas of debate economically about what the impacts are, whether they're good or bad. Yeah. There's two things. Of course, there's no evidence because most of the product, sections of the protocol have yet to be implemented. And, and, and of course, you will see things like, uh, you know, Northern Ireland businesses are doing very well in terms of export because, because they have this access, unlike the rest of Great Britain, to the mm. single market. So, so I saw what I'm in many ways, there, you cannot create a proper evidence base because aspects of the protocol have yet to be implemented. So, so that's the first thing. 
The second thing is Europe has stretched itself in terms of mitigations. As I said, paperwork, 50% reduction, SPS, movement of goods or uh, livestock, etc. 80% has been reduced there. So, so as I don't think anybody doesn't understand that that can be solved. The question here is about the EU making rules in the future over which there is no constitutional right of the UK Parliament or the Assembly to, 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 to have an influence over those rules being made. Mm-hmm. So that does create divergence. Now, okay. so what I'm saying is if you want to have a proper, sober, mature conversation, part of it you've illustrated is problematic because we don't have any evidence. And what I was trying to do is just illustrate these are scenarios that all of the MLAs in Northern Ireland should be taken seriously because the debate has fallen down along the predictable lines of if unionists say this, it's wrong. If Nassos and Republicans say this, then that's wrong. And clearly this is just not a sober, proper debate. Peter, I just want to go back to something you said about the uh, politics in Northern Ireland, about the parties. Is there no place for, for moderate unionism anymore? You say that uh, the DEP's views are quite out of line with, with many unionist voters. What happened to the UUP? And have the alliance now soaked up all of those, those moderate votes? So, so basically what happened was there was a drift. And, and uh, uh, you know, the alliance party used to get around 6% of the vote. In 2017, they got 9%. That was, we, we mapped that at the time. It was a drift of uh, DUP and also unionist voters, especially those who are pro-marriage equality who moved over to the alliance. In this election, they got a drift also from the SDLP. It's not just unionism that is losing out in, in that sense. And, and what you also have clearly is, 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 is going back to my previous point, is that, is that when, when we map this and survey this, and when you look, for example, at the question of a border poll, which is never far away from our elections, when you look at those who don't vote, so in this election, say 35%, okay? When you look at that and you ask the people who didn't vote, what would you do in a border poll? Those who express an opinion are three quarters supportive of staying in the union. The, the, you, what you actually have is a significant section of pro-union voters who just don't vote, who mm-hmm. won't engage in, in constitutional politics, who won't engage in keeping voting the other voting for the other side to keep, keep out. And I think one of the things is internationally, when yes. people see when I, when people see the unionist politics, they think the community that sits behind that is homophobic. They think the community that sits behind that is sectarian. They think the community that sits behind that is misogynist. When in fact, in all the surveys we do, they're actually the opposite. So you actually have a political grouping which is severely yeah. out of touch with its potential electorate. So just very briefly, uh, we've only got yep. a couple of minutes left. I mean, speaking internationally, you've got a US delegation potentially coming to Ireland. There is you know, deep concern around, um, it, it, around uh, security issues and, and um, politics in Northern Ireland. What yeah. do you think, though, is the way forwards then? Boris Johnson is apparently going to be making a decision about this potential legislation to ditch the agreement with the EU. Where do you see things going, just briefly? Well, I just hope I just hope it's not going to enter into a trade war because mm. the thing that people forget is that you can't get rid of the protocol because you know the protocol you effectively get rid of the withdrawal agreement with uh, Europe and then you're into the, the realms of a trade war. So, so uh, the best expectation we can have is this is a better saber rattling to try to get further concessions in the negotiations. Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.
From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.